When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Red Wiley Hubbard will be at the Dakota on Sunday night. Too late to get tickets. We're sold out. But uh, he's one of my favorites, so uh, we uh, uh, were lucky enough to get him to do a little phone interview for us. Uh, welcome, sir. Thank you for this. Oh, you bet. You bet. Well, I tell you what, if you treat my wife Judy real nice, you might can sneak you in. <laughs> That's well, I, I might I might try to use my angles. Yes. How many times have you been up here? Oh, gosh, it's not a lot. You know, uh, it, uh, Minneapolis kind of has to be your destination. I just from where I live south of Austin, you just can't <laughs> drop by. No, that is true. Hey, uh, the new album uh, you got going here. Uh, you got uh, my gal Lucinda Williams on it. That had to be fun, huh? Yeah, it was pretty cool. I feel very good. I, the title of it is "Tell the Devil I'm Getting There as Fast as I Can," which is meant to be meant to be taken metaphorically. You yes, know, like an old cat running out of time, and hopefully it's not a prophecy. But I had, uh, but I've known Lucinda back, oh gosh, and you know, back here in Austin, I guess in the late seventies. I guess we ran around with each, you know, knew each other and did gigs, and then uh, so she, I asked her to sing on it. And she uh, with that cool Lucinda vocal on it, and then all of a sudden, uh, Eric Church also sang on it. So I'm, you know, I'm running with some pretty, you know, people tall cotton. Yeah, your uh, sometimes your metaphorical stuff titles doesn't doesn't work like you hope. Like uh, screw you or from Texas, right? Well, well, see, the problem with irony is not everybody gets. It. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, that true. was supposed to be ironic. <laughs> yes. you know. Like, uh, you know uh, you know, like Oklahoma is a great state. It's, it's exactly like Texas, but it doesn't have the ego. Yeah, right. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, and I mentioned in there about our politicians are loco and yeah, right. corporations are corrupt, but we got good music. That was the whole point of it. <laughs> I got to ask you a question. Every time you see uh, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, does he give you a hundred for uh, up against the wall, redneck mother? Uh, I mean, that's uh, that nope, he owes he you some money. <laughs> Now, why would you think that? <laughs> oh, Jerry Jeff, I just talked to Jerry Jeff a couple. I talked to him all probably about once, once a month or so, and everything. He's doing real well. He's getting ready to put a new record. He had kind of a health scare last year, but he's back and he's ornery and writing songs. And I just, you know, I'm so, you know, I'm grateful he's still with us, man. He's just, he's been one of my heroes for a long, long time, man. He just, he's kind of was actually kind of, you know. First, doing that kind of outlaw movement, you know, which yeah. back before Willie and Waylon, he was the kind of the first cat said, "I'm going to record the song to use my band. I'm going to record a little town called Lukenbach and Hayes." Yeah, Ooh, you know? yeah, that Lukenbach. <laughs> so I've so got a lot of respect for Jerry Jeff. Hey, I got to ask you one last question. I got my guy Johnny Hyde in here, and he's yeah. Mister Music, but. Uh, <laughs> 
Tales from the Tour Bus. Have you seen it? And when are we? And if you have the Cinemax thing that Mike Judge did, have you seen those yet? I have seen those, you know. And we got to get uh, you on one of those, man. Well, I, I've seen. Uh, I've met Mike Judge once a time and everything, and uh, maybe so, you know. Because I tell you what, my life sometimes is a cartoon. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, Shaver, of course, it'd be hard to beat Shaver as a character on uh, one of those uh, shows, I would imagine. On one of I those. would imagine so. Well, I think all those are really great, you know, And uh, but uh, Billy Joe is, uh, I've, I've known him for quite a while, <laughs> and I just I love him to death, and he's, every time we do a gig together, he'll call me up and go, I'm, Ray, I'm, I'm going on first, I'm older than you, so I'm going on, <laughs> you know, so, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's quite a... It's a great series. So, yeah, maybe someday. Hey, uh, one, another thing. Music has got to be an addiction, huh? You guys just can't stay home. Well, it, you know, like I say I'm an old cat, but it's still a joy for me. Yeah, you know, right. I got my son, Lucas. He's my guitar player, and he's just a really cool, hot, young gunslinger guitar player. And, uh, and I travel with a young kid, uh, Kyle Snyder, on drums. And so it's still a joy for me, you know? I mean, it really is. I get up there and... I have fun, and hopefully people will you know, sing along and smile and laugh and have a good time. Johnny, what do you got? Raise your, I read your book about two, three years ago. Is that, is that still in print? Can somebody get a copy of that? Yes, if they it want? is. It's, uh, Sell it's it. Go ahead. It's the truth. I've come to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was written in a really unique way, and the, the listener would have to go pick up a copy and read it. But uh, uh, it's a, it was a fascinating read. I enjoyed it immensely. Well, thank you very much. It was... Uh, you know, I put in there kind of the, you know, being born, growing up, getting into guitar and all that. But then I also put in uh, some of these road stories yes. that happened to me, like when Willie Nelson kidnapped me and <laughs> playing this horrible, funky festival out in East Texas. <laughs> so I put the road stories in there, and then I put some lyrics in my song. But then I also put in there about kind of uh, uh, about, you know, being in inspiration and craft and you know and, and uh and trying to trying to put something in the book about so people would take away from it like uh you know where they feel good about it you know and maybe learn something what's what's the name of it so if people are looking it's called it. a life well, well lived you go. <laughs> you gotta do it with the punctuation yeah. <laughs> life, dot, 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 well comma lived hey ray how'd you, you end life. up how'd you end up in new mexico when uh they fired people found you there Oh, gosh. Uh, right out of high school, I, uh, me and two of the fellows uh, went up to New Mexico, and then me and a, another guy, we just got in an old Ford Fairlane, and we went up to Colorado, and we'd strap on a banjo and a guitar, and we'd walk in these restaurants and go, you know, we'd play Foggy Mountain Breakdown, so you give us a place to stay in a hamburger. <laughs> and, uh, it, was a, it was a good time, but we ended up in New Mexico and met Jerry Jeff and Michael Murphy and all these great guys, and I felt very fortunate, you know, to have seeing lightning hopkins and freddie king and, and some of these cats and you know and hang out and with towns van zandt and guy clark you know, where they were you know very inspiring as as musicians so i like to say i'm an old cat but i'm very grateful tell us about your uh, your relationship with ringo the beetle yes right <laughs> yeah it's really uh uh real briefly uh Someone called me up and said, hey, Ringo starts talking about you on his website. <laughs> so I go to the website, and he he's, does the thing where, where he's listening. He says, hey, I'm listening to uh, some mono tapes George Martin sent me. I'm listening to Bob Dylan. I'm listening to Ray Wiley Hubbard's Snake Farm. Ooh. I'm like, wow, that's cool. 
So we were out in uh, playing out in California, and a guy named Brent Carpenter came to the to my gig, and he said, uh, uh, "Ringo's playing the Greek Theater and wants to meet you." And I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Last time you were here, I burnt him a copy of Snake Farm." So we went out there and met Ringo, and he was uh, just he, he you know he, he he's a musician and, and and loves entertaining and playing. You know, he doesn't have to, but he, he enjoys it. And he enjoys like bringing that joy to people. So we met Ringo, and it was really uh, cool. He said, "Come out and sing help with my friends with him." And so uh, it was. Uh, I wish he'd told his security that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I walk in and go, "Where are you going, son?" I go, "Well, Ringo said I could do it." You know, vouch for me. But uh, yeah, so and then uh, it was really, uh, really, really nice of him uh, to to do that. Ray, I got a question for you, if you don't mind. Uh, genres, you talk about, I've read interviews with you, I read your book, I know the stuff you play. Uh, you kind of think of it all as, as one thing, right? You don't sit and go, this is country, this is rock, this is folk, this is etc. Uh, because I always think the outlaw country, uh, when I hear it, I think, well, that's rock and roll when I grew up. <laughs> what are your thoughts on uh, on the genre? Well, I thing? think, you know, the, the whole thing is, that whole outlaw thing was like the musician's not letting the record labels tell them what to sing or who to play on their band. And so that's kind of, there's a, there's kind of, you know, the kind of a new outlaw movement now, guys, you know, Ryan Bingham and uh, Aaron Lee Tashton and some of these guys, just young, uh, they're kind of rock guys with a, with a rock, rock and roll attitude of that independence, but they're kind of based in uh, doing, uh, you know, country with uh, kind of that Waylon, uh, ideal, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's some really good, young, good cats running around. One last question, Ray. Did you ever uh, hang out with Towns Earl? With, with, uh, Towns with, Van Zandt. With Towns, oh, yeah. I really, I learned a lot from Towns. First thing I learned was not to gamble with him. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't, whatever, because, you know, he, he would do that. But then, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, Towns was, uh, you know, he was very ins inspirational. I mean, one of my, you know, just, uh, we uh, would went around the same circles, and uh, a real quick story. Uh, one night there was a place in uh, Dallas called the Three Teardrops Tavern, and so Guy Clark and Towns Van Sant were playing there, right? Oh my goodness! So I show up, so I'm just kind of hanging out by the soundboard. So Guy and Towns are on stage playing, and also they played about 45 minutes. So anyway, I see Towns whisper in Guy's ear. So then Guy goes to the microphone and says, "Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a special guest." Ray Wiley Hubbard is in the audience. Ray, come up and sing. So, you know, I go up there to a smattering of applause, and I get on stage, and Towns hands me his guitar. So I start this song. <laughs> As I'm playing this, about halfway through the song, I see the front door of the club open. I see Guy in Towns getting a cab. <laughs> you know, and so I finish the song, I say, that's going to be a short break. Uh, Towns just left. <laughs> They, they came back about 30 minutes later and played, but yeah, they were just, they were always messing with me. All right. Hey, Ray, th have a good time up here, and thanks a lot for uh, spending well, a little what, time. I'm really looking forward to coming up there. You know, I just, uh, uh, there were some of my favorite heroes. There was no a group of Spider Snake and Little Son from Minneapolis up there. I just, uh, uh, Spider John Kerner and those guys, men, and Tony Glover and uh, Dave Ray, they were really inspirational to me as a, as a kid with their music. So I'm really looking forward to coming up there. All right, sir. Thanks, Ray. You bet. You got to uh, take care. All right, Ray Wiley Hubbard, uh, and he'll be at the Dakota on Sunday night. And I'm sure if you call up somebody who knows, you can get yourself a ticket. That was fun. Mm -hmm. All right. There's probably... Uh, <laughs> you know what we learned. Towns Van Zandt might have been more stories there. What? You know what we yeah. learned? 
He got dark starred. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Why don't you come on up and sing with the fellas? Yeah, right. I kind of knew when he got waved up there that uh, that was going to be the punchline because uh, Towns uh, Towns was known to not put in his full uh, two hours. Yeah. So. And Towns and Guy were known to imbibe a bit. So my guess is they went and had a couple drinks somewhere. <laughs> All right. Uh, that, that was great. And George will be back for the uh, Summer Slam Bam. Thank you to Ray Wiley Hubbard. That was fun. George Shire is back. Uh, AWA Talk. George, uh, tell us about the uh, newest book. Well, the newest book is the AWA Results Record Book, Part 2 for the 70s, 1975 to 79. And, you know, the fun thing about these books is not only do you get all the results, but you get a ton of programs, yes. you get a ton of pictures, and you get a ton of inside information and little notes that I put in there. Now, did they, did the Minnesota, Minneapolis Boxing Club or Wrestling Club or whatever it is that put out those little sheets, did they keep doing those till the end? No, they those, actually... When did those, I love those things that were the basically were available at the matches, yeah. right? Yeah. They were the four-page programs that yeah. were available the night the, of the matches. Small things. Yeah. Though. They were eight and a half by ten size, mm-hmm. four pages. And the reason they were so cool is because that's the reason you were there that night. They yeah, talked they about set the up feud, what was going on. Yeah. Told you what happened last week and why you were there this week. And Who did those? Uh, they were they were published out of the Minneapolis Wrestling Office, and the editor was always listed as a guy named Bob Bork. I don't know <laughs> if he existed or not. But they quit they quit publishing them in 1971 in okay. June of 71. Okay, and then the Wrestling News Magazine became the staple with a lineup sheet inserted into it. That's what they Did offered. St. Paul after have anything like that for those cards? Yep, St. Paul, Minneapolis, both had St. Paul because- had wrestling facts. Minneapolis had sports facts. Yes, and uh, I remember those being at the office when I was uh, working in the St. Paul paper on the desk on uh, the nights because they'd drop one off so Mm -hmm. we'd know what the matches were when they called them in. So try to get them in the paper. All right, what do we have there, Reavers? We're going to go to Marty. Let's take Marty's call. Marty, what's up? Yes, guys. uh, I wanted to ask about uh, one of my favorites who we just lost recently, uh, Luscious Johnny Valiant, who was in uh, some kind of accident where where he was run over by a car in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yes. uh, uh, Sadly, Johnny left us about three, four months ago. Yeah, uh, that was a weird deal. Ironically, he was crossing the street. Uh, He wasn't at the intersection, but he was crossing the street, and he got hit uh, by a hit-and-run truck. Yeah. Fans here locally would remember Johnny Valiant as Luscious Johnny Valiant, along mm-hmm. with his brother, Handsome Jimmy Valiant. Uh, who were they in actuality? Well, Luscious Johnny Valiant, his uh, real name was uh, Thomas Sullivan. Okay. And he was trained for the business by Bruno San Martino. Oh, really? And he was a protege of Vern, or of, of uh, Bruno. And he wrestled as John L. Sullivan for a while, taking the name of the <laughs> oh, old sure, the boxer, greatest boxer, the greatest yeah. boxer for many decades earlier. But he uh, he then adopted the name of Luscious Johnny Valiant, teaming mm-hmm. up with Jimmy. And they had a huge, when you talk about tag teams, uh, the Valiant brothers were huge in the New York Territory for about three years running. Then they were in the Detroit Territory. They were big here in the AWA. Had a huge run. Great tag team. Colorful. Very very, How uh, long were they here? They were here for about a year. Okay. Yeah. 
651-646-8255. George uh, is here to answer your questions. Uh, So I was telling you that I swear I'd love to get go through the archives of the Fold of Free Press and find out when I saw Gorgeous George and Harboyle Haggerty at the Fold of Ballpark. Because it's always astounded me that, you know, I can see Haggerty showing up with the rest of them, but that we actually had Gorgeous George show up down there. It's amazing. Tell me about him again. What was his name? Well, George Wagner. Yes. And he had wrestled for several years. As just George Wagner, brown hair, kind of very plain wrestler, didn't have much going for him. And back in the late 40s, he come up with this idea that if I were to bleach my hair blonde, mm-hmm. get a permanent, yes, and grow it long. And become a little effeminate. And become a little effeminate, <laughs> which in that era definitely yes. didn't go over. No, right. And he wore these beautiful robes. Yes. And he would come into the ring with a valet who would spray, spray the ring with a... What do you call them? An atomizer? Yeah, what are they? Right, yeah. And make sure that didn't there were no germs. Perfume oh, yeah. Into? yeah. He called he didn't call it uh it wasn't number number five, it was number ten or something. <laughs> yeah, he called right. it. Uh he, he would throw gold bobby pins to the fans. Yes. Usually the ladies, and he called them Georgie pins. <laughs> and he when the referee would try to check him for a foreign object, he would say, get your filthy hands off of me. And uh, the fans would boo him, and he made tons of money as Gorgeous George. And the the irony of this... He did the whole country, right? Is that he did the whole country. He'd go into territories just for short periods of time, yeah. get his money, and go to somewhere else. But when he came to town... He would literally make sure he would call the newspapers. Mm-hmm. He would call the radio stations. He would make sure that he was seen at the beauty parlor getting oh, his really? hair done. Oh, oh yeah. They, so they'd go and yep. snap him. They would snap him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he literally uh, became the biggest attraction. And then when you talk about your Ric Flair's and your Hulk Hogan's yeah. and your Jesse Ventura's and anybody else, they all copied Gorgeous George. I don't think anybody was as good at it. Uh, the, the period of time, though, helped, too, right. that everybody... Oh, oh yeah. Well, yeah. you know, back in the early this 50s, was, when you're talking blonde hair and a permanent, you know, and then being uh, not really normal, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it went over well. Uh, what was his period? When he, when did he uh, give it up? Fr- from the mid-40s till 19... Oh, he was that... The uh, mid-40s to 1963, and ironically, mm-hmm. this is a sad ending to his career... He had, he was quite the drinker, and he was an oh, alcoholic. Really? He was an alcoholic, and he was almost practically dying of liver cancer. The whole thing. He talked Dick Byer, the destroyer, our Doctor X in the AWA, yeah. talked him into doing a hair versus mask match. <laughs> and he he told Dick, he said, "I need the money. I want. I'll do the match, and then we're going to shave my head when we're done." Yeah. They promoted this thing really well out in California, and. Uh, George got a great payday out of it and went out. And then on Christmas Eve of 1963, sadly, he passed away. He wasn't very old then. He, he was only in his 40s. Okay. Yeah. Uh, who do we have there? Let's Chris. go to Butch. Butch! Hello. Great conversation. Fantastic. Um, I apologize if this was asked earlier. I've been ducking in and out as best I can. But, George, how did these... How did they incentivize the incentivize the the perennial loser, the pudgy white guy with the bad shorts like Johnny Ring, to continually go in and get battered around night after night? What? How did they get these guys to agree to do that? 
The first thing you have to realize is that a guy like Kenny J or George Gadaski or Julio Rodriguez or mm-hmm. Rooster Griffin, any number of guys <laughs> you want to name, their job was to lose, and the majority of them were not full-time wrestlers. Kenny J., for example, had a full-time landscaping business mm-hmm. that he had with his brother and his kids, and they would get paid to go into the TV studio on a Saturday afternoon, and this was anywhere town USA. I mean, every area had their own Kenny J's, and they would get paid 100 or $200 to, to do two matches on TV and lose, and that was, that was it. They had full-time jobs, and their career wasn't in wrestling. No, and I suppose at some point, were, were some of them into it, starting off with great ambitions, and then told, boy, you just don't have a shtick, it's oh, not going to work? That happened, that happened all the time. The guy couldn't cut it, or he didn't like the travel, or he didn't mm-hmm. like the, you know, the, the schedule. I mean, a lot of those things. The schedule for a professional wrestler back in the territory days... I'm not going to speak for today, but in the territory days, absolutely brutal. uh, They would literally wrestle 350, 360 days a year with no time off, and they didn't have insurance. I mean, if they did, they had to pay for their own insurance. I think you told me, or some other people have told me that actually. One reason Vern was able to get a lot of these national guys to come in is yeah. he didn't work them as hard right. as uh, some well, of the other places. The AWA territory, and Nick Bockwinkel often said this, that he could stay working here and basically only work six months out of the year. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean he had six months off. No. But he would work enough days a week where you definitely did could not you have now to... look? Could Nick, like, not wrestle in july and nobody around here would think nope. anything of nobody it. would you, think anything you, of you it. only had to come up with a story if sure. he was leaving for six months or oh yeah something, right yeah i mean the guys could you know and then summer times weren't always the best draws the summer, for wrestling. did they even have weeklies in the summer or they do it less they often did, they did in the 60s but they didn't draw as well as they did in the winter months yeah and it was basically because during the summer there's just too much for people to do. And if you went to one of if you went to your lake cabin in the in the summer back then to this dumpy lake cabin, you didn't that was a journey. You didn't come right. back for weeks, you know. So <laughs> All right. Hey, well, let's, can we do one more? Let's do one yes. more call before okay. we go to break. Let's take right. Pete. Hey guys, when I was young, I remember a wrestler Pampero Furple, the wild bull of the Pampas. And I just didn't know anything ever about him. He showed up every once in a while in the AWA, but I don't know how. I just remember a huge rivalry with the Crusher. Okay, can you tell me a little about him? You yeah. bet. And didn't uh, you tell me that uh... Pampero Furpo? That was the name that he ended his or wrestled most of his career with. He was just inducted into the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in Wichita, Texas, this past May. He's now eighty-two years old. You'd never recognize him. He's shaved head, no beard. Uh, he but, was a huge guy, wasn't but he? he was huge in his day. He was bushy-haired, long beard, and he was the wild bull of the, of the Pampas. Pampas yes. And he originally wrestled as Ivan the Terrible, and he actually worked oh, in the really? he I actually worked that. in the Minneapolis territory in 1958-59 as Ivan the Terrible, <laughs> and then he left until '64 and came back as Furpo, and nobody remembered it. It's hard to live down a reputation of being Ivan the Terrible. Yes, it's hard is, to recoup from yeah, that. Right. That's his, a bad nickname in wrestling. His his real name was is Juan Cashmanian. 
Really? And he is that um, Greek from someplace well, or what? You know, he he always boasted that he could speak seven languages, and I almost <laughs> believe he could. But his interviews were what really made him great because he'd talk in an accent, and I could never do it. But when he was talking to Marty O'Neill, his biggest thing was that he had a huge feud with the Crusher. Yes, the he Crusher, was Argentinian, right? He was uh, Argentinian. Yeah, and he would say, "It is I, it is me." It is Pampero Furpo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, legitimately, this was weird. Terrified Marty. Poor oh, little yeah. Marty. Yeah. Uh, he was always very strong. He'd bend things with his teeth. Mm-hmm. He'd put a, put a bar in his teeth and bend it <laughs> with his hands. Uh, he had a feud with the Crusher. They had a cage match. Mm-hmm. And finally, Wally Carbo said he'd had enough with Furpo, and he's suspended Mm-hmm. For three years, because Furpo was more cheated more than the Crusher did. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and Furpo had been well, was, suspended. Where was Furpo going? But the, the deal suspended. Well, the deal was this is interesting. This is the only time that I can recall in pro wrestling where they really did a three year suspension, and he came back in '69, and he wanted to start his feud with the Crusher again to get revenge. But the fans started cheering him. He became a good guy, <laughs> and he started teaming with the Crusher. Oh, how so there you go. Well, why did they suspend him? Was he uh... because he was breaking the rules? <laughs> yeah, but of you course. Don't yeah, you're supposed to break the rules. That was probably a play on almost on Primo Carnera, huh? The the old the boxer. For, yeah, yeah, that was yeah, the big I don't old know. boxer who was yeah. kind of a hulky. Oh yeah, guy Primo that... Carnera was huge yeah. for his time. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. Uh, six five one six four six eight two five five. The uh, summer slam bam with George Shire. We're winding down here. Get your questions in. And uh, what's our Twitter account? Fifteen hundred ESP at fifteen hundred yep. ESPN. Or they can individually tweet both of us, and we'll get oh, those questions on as well. Maybe you, but uh, and then. Uh, also, uh, you can uh, send it to, uh, what's our, uh, how do you email us? Just go to the show page online right now at 1500ESPN.com and you can email in your questions for George. That'd be great. We'll be back. What'd you do to us here? All of a sudden, the lines are full again. George, first, plug the uh, the original, the book that will tell you stories about everybody we've been talking about today. That's the Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. It's published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press, the Minnesota History Center here in St. Paul, Minnesota. It is available through Barnes & Noble, all your favorite bookstores, or you can go online to Amazon.com. And the only thing I'll tell you is that as we talk about all these guys here today, anybody we've mentioned they're in the book. They're talked about in the book. There's photos, uh, stories, histories, bios. I say buy it, and then you'll have fun. It's a good book. It'll tell you all about the history of Minnesota wrestling as the AWA. All righty. Who we got? Let's go to Clarence. Clarence! I, I knew a guy that claimed that uh, they filmed the TV show the night before, and they, he knew this because they had to have some fans fill up the first couple of rows of seats so it didn't look empty. Is that possible? Uh, Normally, the wrestling TV show was taped live at the originally at the Calhoun Beach Hotel, which was the uh, station that WTCN was at, and they would offer two sets of seats, uh, two sides of the ring to have fans come in and sit. Tickets were free, but you just had to show up. 
And normally they were live. Occasionally they would show a taped match on the program. But the shows were usually taped. As they got into the later 60s, 70s, and certainly into the 80s, they would tape two or three shows. And sometimes a week later you'd get the week, you know, last week's show that they taped. But they were generally live uh, matches. All righty. Who's next? Uh, let's go to Scott. Scott, what's up? George, uh, I remember seeing a documentary about Jake the Snake Roberts when he was really on hard times. I was wondering, uh, how was he doing? And have you seen the new series, Glow? No, I have not seen the new series. Uh, the, the deal with Jake the Snake is obviously he's a more current wrestler. I can't yeah. tell you he's doing well. He's uh, definitely beat some of the demons that he wrestled with, no pun intended, for a long time. And he was a heck of a great worker. Uh, for those fans that don't know, Jake the Snake Roberts uh, was the uh, uh, star that was in the WWF in the 80s. But uh, he's, he's doing well. And Glow is a series about uh, female wrestling, women's wrestling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I watched one episode, and I tried, but I it didn't really get into it. But yeah. uh, well, the thing well, about when did uh, women's wrestling kind of die out as an attraction? Well, it, it, women's wrestling was always just an attraction for the fifty, the late forties, fifties, and sixties, where most promotions would bring the lady wrestlers in for a a tour of the territory for two or three mm-hmm. or four weeks. There weren't a lot of lady wrestlers back in that era. Those that were were hard workers, excellent, excellent talent, but there really was, uh, you know, not a market for it. Who was the was it the great Moolah? Who fabulous Moolah. The fabulous Moolah. Yep. Was she yep. here? She wrestled here. Okay. Yep. We had names like Penny Banner, Lorraine Johnson, Kay Noble, Betty Nikolai. Princess Little Cloud, mm-hmm. uh, Vivian Was Vashon. Princess Little Cloud a real Native American, or did we uh, uh, come up with that Her one? real name is Dixie Jordan, and she, <laughs> at the time of being Princess Little Cloud, was married to Eddie Sharkey. Oh, okay. All righty. And, of course, we had Vivian Vashon and Sherry Martell and some of those. Great women wrestling was always great. Today's version is more of a... Uh, Pull hair. It, it's just a, it's a, a sex show is all mm-hmm. it is. I'm sorry. All right. What do we have there, sir? Let's go to John. John? Hello, John. Yes, sir. Yes. You got, have a, a got a question about uh, Pompero Purple. Yes, we when just he, had one. Yes. They, they did a promo with uh, the Crusher prior to his match, and that's when the Crusher pulled out a hedge clippers, and he was going to give Pompero Purple a haircut just like his. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Purple came out and, and grabbed the hedge clippers, and did a job on the Crusher really bad. And that's, is that where Crusher came up with, a, I lost a gallon of blood and got a thousand stitches in my head? Well, Crusher probably came up with that line for many of his matches <laughs> because uh, he, was, he would bleed often. And uh, the thing with Furpo is Crusher, when he became a babyface, with Furpo, he would come into the ring when he had a sprayer with him that he would be spraying to because he didn't want to have the insects jumping out of Furpo's <laughs> hair. When, when, when he would wrestle Mad Dog Vashon, Mad Dog was a bad guy, Crusher would be throwing dog food into the ring at him. Yes. And when, when Killer Kowalski was here, Killer Kowalski was an admitted vegetarian, so Crusher would walk around the ring throwing lettuce and carrots and things like that in the ring, just to infuriate him. But that was the way the Crusher made his money. He always had a gimmick to sell the match. Was he a good wrestler? Crusher? crusher? No. 
Mm-hmm. Crusher, Crusher, basically, uh, a lot of guys would have to work with Crusher to make him look better than he was. Okay. But Crusher was a brawler. Crusher yeah. was, and it was his character. It was oh, his persona. Oh, sure, obviously. And I he, loved him. Even know. as a bad guy, uh, it was the arrogance and stuff that he, you know, put off on the screen. So, uh, Crusher wasn't the greatest worker. I think the Crusher was when America society, Minnesota society changed in the mid-60s because all of us youth rooted for the Crusher when he was still the evil bad guy before he made the turn. Well, Crusher used to... he was such a lovable bad guy pounding beer cans on his forehead and the like. It was a rebellious thing. Crusher used to come into the ring and he'd say he's going to give a scientific kick. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, that wasn't really a wrestling move. But, uh, he, he was great. He had a claw hold in his in his heel days where he put the claw hold on the on the opponent's stomach. Yeah. And he'd have his fingers the Baron in Baron specialized in that. But that was on Baron's the head for was, the Baron. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Crusher would put it on the stomach. Yes. And, he would, and the referee would try to get him to break the hold, and he'd say that he can't because his fingers swell up. <laughs> so the wrestler would be in pain and finally concede. I mean, okay. the, the, you know, wrestling, they just had... Great times. Was, it, was that hold illegal? Oh yeah, of course. The, the, the claw holds are. It, not it would be illegal. his finisher. It was only illegal when he wouldn't break it. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. As long as his but opponent gave I up. I didn't realize then, that the claw was that you couldn't. That according to the rules, you shouldn't use the claw. Well, it was the dreaded claw hold, and it wasn't illegal until they wouldn't break it when was the wrestler was the sleeper illegal or not. Only if it was a chokehold. Most of the opponents said it was. It was, okay. You know, (laughs) Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan said it was a choke. Yeah, well, that's good. We'll have one more here. Let's go to Ben. Ben. Yes, back in the, I think it was the 80s, the AWA had a referee that is a big blonde guy, kind of chubby. He only had a thumb, four fingers missing. Then watch a week later, he'd be wrestling with a mask on. He'd getting the crap beat out of him and stuff that, like that. That was uh, Jim Mitchell was his name. <laughs> he wrestled as the Iron Duke. But he did. He had he had fingers missing on one so hand. So he would referee. He would referee, and you could see that he didn't have fingers. And then the next week, they'd try to sell him as a wrestler. Well, some, some fans didn't pay attention, you know? Come on. You know what? I think that one was pushing our uh, our uh, ability to uh, believe uh, a little bit. George could not be stumped. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> I, I did have That's one. That's a real... No wonder the guy didn't win many matches. He had no fingers. <laughs> no grip. He didn't have any grip. No. Oh. All right. We'll be back. <laughs> You're just playing that train song to taunt me, are you? I really am. Uh, that's right. Well, I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan, well, so that's, that, that's music to that's my good. ears. Well, I had a train ride last week that uh, didn't work out so well, George. So, <laughs> Some are uh, wondering if you're still on someday it. I'll, uh, someday I'll tell you about it. Uh, so I think that last caller we had was a very close observer of wrestling. He saw the referee with a thumb. <laughs> and then the next week he saw the wrestler with the thumb. Said, Wait a minute. Hold on here. What are the odds? He's got a mask on. <laughs> what are the odds? He, George said he wore a, a glove, though, on that hand with only the thumb on it. So this guy was really perceptive then. What do we got, sir? Let's go to Aaron. Aaron, what's up? I was wondering, uh, going back to these TV interviews, 
Yes. Like on Channel 9 during, on Saturday or whatever. And they'd interview like guys like Dusty Rhodes. He had the greatest interviews in the world. Right. You know, who wrote that stuff for these guys? You know, as, you know NWA, WWF, you know, who, did these guys write it themselves or did someone else write the stuff for them? Pat and I were talking about this off the air just a little bit ago. Unlike today's product, the WWE, where everything is totally scripted for every wrestler by the creative team, as they call it, back in our day, in the territory days, all you did with a guy like Dusty or Bobby Heenan or Nick Bockwinkel, whoever it was, you told them who their opponent was, where they were in the in the program with them, and what town they were going to be in, and the guys ran with it. And that's what made it so special, because for two or three minutes... Guys like Dusty and, and Heenan and so many, many of them could entertain you with just rattling it off like they did, and they had no scripts, and nobody ever told them what to say. They just did it. They knew it. Uh, Reavers, I was reminded, George, of uh, when I, I did a Heenan obit when Bobby died and uh, the famous story of when, I th- was it Marty or Gene? I can't remember. But he comes up and he said, this is our plan for beating Ganya for right, Bachwinkle, right. sure, and it was a uh, inside his big plan. It was a Playboy centerfold that he was in. They said, what do you think of that plan? <laughs> and and uh, I don't know, it was Gene, uh, Marty, or, or Gene said, "Well, that's a very interesting plan you have there." And and the best Bobby. part of that was that Bobby Heenan never told it was Marty no. O'Neill. Yeah, and he never told Marty he was going to do this. So he just all of a sudden shows him this is yeah, Nick's plan for beating the champ. Like, it's inside like a folder, right, so you, right. the public doesn't know right. what he's and doing. And then he opened it up and it was a Playboy centerfold. <laughs> And he never broke character, did no, he? Marty, no, Marty, Marty, Marty just said, well, I don't know how Vern's going to handle that one. <laughs> what do we have? Let's go to Mike. Mike. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? We're great. Good. Good. Well, in my, in my much younger days, George, I worked for Sim Security, and I sat ringside for about nine years. So for me, it's good to hear the names going back and forth like you guys are doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, one quick one. My uncle wrestled in the Navy in the early 50s with Danny Hodge. And Hodge would show up at my uncle's place up in Brooklyn Park, stay overnight when he was working with Vern. And uh, he's, Franny said one night Danny hurt his leg, had to be carted off. But that night they were down dancing at the Flame Bar. <laughs> <laughs> Who was Danny Hodge? I never heard of him. Danny Hodge was probably... Thanks. He is one wrestler that every wrestler will tell you that you didn't want Danny to get a hold on you because Danny was the legit deal. Oh, really? Uh, he Danny, is the old, Danny took it seriously. Danny Hodge was a legitimate wrestler, a mm-hmm. real wrestler turned, yeah. turned pro, mm-hmm. and he holds the distinction as being the only wrestler, pro wrestler, to ever be on the cover of Sports Illustrated until Hulk Hogan did it back mm-hmm. in the 80s. Hmm. Was and, he? But he was a collegiate wrestler. A collegiate wrestler from Oklahoma. Okay, and very, very tough. He had hands of stone. Uh, Danny will take an apple, and he will just hold it in his hand and squeeze it right into applesauce. <laughs> and and this is true. He will take a pliers. He, still, still he, with will, us, he will take a pliers and he will squeeze it till he breaks it. Where was he the biggest then? Down in the Oklahoma, Oklahoma Texas area. He was the NWA junior heavyweight I think champion. I almost for many remember years. that name as a, a collegiate yep. pre Dan Gable yep. uh, monster. So. There, there's actually a book out that uh, my friend Mike Chapman put out a few years back called The Two Dans, and it was about Dan Gable 
and Dan Hodge. Oh, okay. And that book is available, I think, online as well. And uh, one more here. Yeah, Bob's got a great question for you, George. Bob, go ahead. Yeah, given their ring work plus their mic work, who is your top five wrestlers of all time? Ooh. That's a tough question. Man. That is that is a tough question, but when you say ring work and and uh mic work, it's a combination that I may surprise you when I say this, but I would go with Bobby Heenan. Bobby Heenan was so good in the ring that most of the wrestlers will tell you that he was better than they were at what he did. And he why wasn't he and he choose, wasn't really why a wrestler. Did he chose to be, start off as a manager then. Well, he started off as a manager because he happened to be Dick the Bruiser's neighbor and used to mow his lawn and <laughs> asked to asked to carry the ring jackets into the ring, but and then, you know, Bruiser gave him his start as as a manager. But Bobby was as we just talked a bit ago about, you know, being so good on the microphone and so I mean, Bobby would say things like you know, the night that uh, Nick Bockwinkel was going to have to defend his title to Mad Dog Vashon on Thanksgiving. And Bobby came out and said to Gene Okerlund, he said, we're not going to have turkey. We're going to have dog. <laughs> and he's got a newspaper in his hand, and he's slapping the newspaper against his hand. And he says, you know what you do to a dog? You get him down on the mat, and then you kick him. Well, Bockwinkel's going to kick his teeth out. Both of them. <laughs> Now, when you think about the 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 ad lib to that, and the fact that Mad Dog really did just have two teeth, or then he'd come out and say, you know what Mad Dog uses for for uh, dental floss? He uses rope. <laughs> uh, and his one of his greatest lines was when he they were going to have Leo Namalini as the special guest referee oh, for yeah. a Bachwinkle match. Leo would restore order. And Leo was a former wrestler and former NFL <laughs> football great, player. And one of the greatest golfers of all time. Golfer, football player, played for the uh, San Francisco, great football player. So he was going to be the special referee, and... Bobby Heenan was upset, and he says, "Now they're giving us a guy whose name looks like a name, uh, like a eye chuck." <laughs> oh. Number one, Bobby. We'd have to do it quick here, George. Who, who else would you? He wanted five. Who's number two? We well, can only get through. You two. know, there are so many that were good. Ray Stevens was great. Dusty Rhodes. Somebody mentioned him earlier. Superstar Billy Graham, great on the microphone. Yeah. Larry Pretty Boy Hennig in Nick. his in his heel days. Nick. Absolutely phenomenal. I Nick Bockwinkel. I like Nick with the condescend. I always, yep. I always loved the condescending yep. guy on the on the on the interviews, and he was, yep. you know, rather than the crusher, it was fun. But the condescending guys that would question our brain power. Was but you know, and he never best. raised his voice. He no. usually was very yes. calm and collected. Use big words. And, and, and you take a guy like the Crusher. How can you take the Crusher out with his interviews as funny as they were? Mm-hmm. And he'd mispronounce words and then ask Marty to pronounce them for him. You know. <laughs> and, but they all did this on their own. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's the thing that's the most amazing. They had no scripts. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the. Uh, and the interviews were, you know, not once in a while somebody come over and beat another guy up while the interview was going on. But the oh interview, yeah, but that was to set up another were like program. Three four minutes, and they were great. Right. They were great. And and the whole objective of that two or three minute interview 
was for the announcer to throw out the town and the wrestler, let the wrestler run with it, and get you to hate him or love him and run <laughs> don't and buy your tickets. Run and buy your tickets. Yep. George, this was fantastic. Uh, we'll do it again. We're going to have a... We're, we're booking George now for a state fair appearance. Oh, beautiful. Because so. this, this was the first ever weekday appearance by George, the, correct? It was first ever official... Summer slam bam. That's right. But it uh, won't be the last. No, that's heavens, for sure. no. Thank right, you, George. thank you, Patrick and Chris. Thank you for running the board. You're like a one-legged kangaroo back the there. The new book. Uh, the new book will be out soon, and we will talk about it in depth when it is here. All right, uh, you're running a little behind schedule, but there's too much good material. Oh, it's great. I it's going to be feeling. great. All righty, folks. Uh, we will do this again tomorrow, but certainly not with as much uh, excitement.